Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 14, Methodologies for the Study of Mysticism. Last episode, we looked at the way terminology associated with the ancient mystery cults, terms like mystical and mystic and mysticism, developed over time into a modern group of terms. Mystic in the Doctor Strange sense of basically magical, and mysticism having something to do with a personal inner religious experience or path. We reluctantly decided that it was the latter category which concerns us as students of Western esotericism, despite the awesomeness of Ditko-era Doctor Strange comics. Now, we noted that the meaning of this latter term, mysticism, is actually quite tricky to pin down, and that's what I want to talk about in this episode. In the last episode, we defined the most pressing problems with the term mysticism. The fact that no one can agree on what it means, but people use it all the time as though it is an explanatory term. And that is the problem this episode will aim at dealing with. Spoiler alert, we won't actually solve this problem, but we hope to raise awareness of it so people can think critically when people start bandying the word mysticism about. And before we approach the problem, let's do a quick thought experiment. We're going to create two working definitions just for this episode and see how they play out in the following discussion. Mysticism 1, or M1, we will define as the practice of mysticism. However we'd want to define that specifically, we can say here that it has something to do with personal religious experiences out of the ordinary run-of-the-mill sort, and that mystics of this first type of mysticism have these experiences. That is, M1 refers to what mystics are getting up to in as much as they are mystics. Mysticism 2, or M2, means the belief in Mysticism 1 and the traditions surrounding Mysticism 1. Let's illustrate this with a concrete example. Let's say there are two people. Call them Rupert and Steve. Rupert is a mystic engaged in Mysticism 1. In fact, he is a fully-fledged Plotinian Platonist living in the 3rd century CE who has attained to what Porphyry describes as drawing near to and uniting with the God beyond all being, quote, not potentially, but in ineffable reality, energeia areto kaiu duname. Note the term ineffable here, aretos. So we had energeia areto in Porphyry's description of Plotinus's mystical union. This is an ineffable action or reality, which you'll recall from last episode also meant, in the context of mystery cult, secret or not to be spoken. Rupert has had an experience which cannot be spoken of, which is somehow beyond the power of language to describe, but which also invokes the older tropes of mystery cult, meaning secret or carrying with it a semantic sphere involving ideas about initiatory secrecy. Rupert is practicing M1. Steve, on the other hand, is also a Platonist philosopher of the 3rd century, but he hasn't quite got there yet. But he believes that Rupert has. I think it's safe to say that Rupert is probably the leader of Steve's particular branch of Platonism. He's the teacher, and Steve is one of his students. Steve is doing mysticism too. He believes in mysticism, one. He promotes it as a goal. He recognizes its importance, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't practice it. 
However, and this is a fundamental problem with dealing with experiences, or to put it another way, of interpreting that which is areton, Rupert, you see, wrote a philosophical treatise on his visit to the One Beyond Being. In it, he tells us that the union he experienced with that entity was not a union, that the entity was not an entity, and that the union, which was not a union, was ineffable. These paradoxical statements are typical of a genre of writing known as apophatic mysticism or mystical writing, or also called the via negativa or negative theology in the Christian tradition. But this entire written corpus remains at the level of mysticism too. Any account of a mystical event, even written by Rupert, who is a mysticism one man, remains mysticism too. I hope that's clear. We can't access the original experience. We can only hear a description of it. And indeed, Rupert is the first to insist on this. That's why he tells us again and again that what he's describing isn't really what he's describing, and so on. So, in short, mystical literature is not itself mystical, if by mystical we mean M1, the actual practice of ineffable union or ineffable religious experience of some kind. It is like a commentary on mysticism one, and thus it belongs in mysticism two. Thus, Rupert is hypothetically a mysticism one man, but he also has a strong sideline or day job in mysticism two, where he writes philosophical treatises about his unions and so on with the highest principles. And these contribute to what we might call a mystical tradition, a tradition of mystical literature, which is all in the realm of M2. Now, once you've brought the paradox-loving styles of description associated with mystical writing into play, you can say goodbye to easy definitions of anything to do with mysticism one or its goal. Every union is not a union. Every divine being is not truly a being. Every name given to the ultimate reality is just a placeholder, which cannot truly grasp what is going on in the mystical act, if we can call it that. If you think magic is a tough one to define, and check out episode 5 of the podcast if you don't believe me about this. It has nothing on mysticism. Now, there are some obvious and also some more subtle reasons why this is the case. So let's back up and start with some of the obvious reasons why the term mysticism is so problematic before we do anything as rash as diving headfirst into apophatic mystical writing, which is just a realm of craziness. Let's start with the problems with mysticism as a category at level two, mysticism two. One obvious problem is the fact that we talk about mysticism in the context of numerous traditions, so that we end up calling a number of completely different phenomena examples of mysticism. A Christian having an ineffable encounter with the divine presence, which he or she defines as a pure absence of presence. A Buddhist monk who attains to the supreme realization that there really is no ontological basis in so-called reality. A late Platonist philosopher like Rupert, who passes from the contemplation of the truths of geometry to a higher realization of the oneness of the ground of being, a realization which cannot be put into words. A Jewish Kabbalist who climbs the Sephiroth of the Tree of Life to attain to a divine vision full of ineffable light and power. An Islamic Sufi practitioner who comes to the maqam of nearness to Allah and thereafter knows on some fundamental level that the reality of God lies behind all of creation. Each of these examples is 
perhaps a typical instance or even a cliched instance of the mysticism of a given religious tradition, but each of these is something very different. This should be obvious from the descriptions. Now, some modern commentators have sought to create a category, mysticism, which encompasses all of these instances, harmonizing them, usually by positing a primary mystical experience, which each of the mystics in question has, but then interprets in terms of their own tradition. We met a few of them last week, William James being the most famous example, who can sort of stand for a whole experientialist, psychological school of thought about mysticism. In other words, thinkers like James have taken many instances of mysticism too, and posited lurking behind them, a mysticism one which unites them all. But couldn't we also just say that these people are all having different experiences? Why is there only one basic mysticism one? It's certainly obvious that they describe them differently. So an obvious problem with the category of mysticism is whether it is a useful category for investigating religious experience at all. Since the only real access we have to religious experiences in other people lies in their descriptions of them, that is, M2, it seems heavy-handed, to say the least, to say that in all these cases we know better than the mystics what they were experiencing. They say divine presence in absence, we say mystical experience. They say realization of universal not-being, we say mystical experience, and so on. So problem number one, mysticism as a category conflates what are described as vastly different experiences. And let's be clear here, when we're looking at mystical literature, which is obviously a problematic category, but let's define it as accounts written by people describing extraordinary encounters with the ultimate reality of their religious tradition, to make a basic working definition for this episode, we do not usually find the mystics themselves saying that their experiences somehow point to some universal human ground of experience which transcends their religious tradition. As Joseph Katz has pointed out with some urgency, mystics tend to insist on the letter of the law, whether the law be Jewish, Platonist, Muslim, or what have you. The people we typically call mystics often engage in scriptural interpretation, and the meanings which they unearth in the scriptures often point to a religious practice of encounter which goes far beyond what we might define as normative practice. So, for example, Naqshbandi Sufis read the Qur'an with many interpretations pointing to higher faculties of consciousness and being, known as the lata'if, the subtle centers of the human being. These lata'if enable the Sufi salik, or traveler, to have direct perceptions of spiritual truths and to attain to states of being in consciousness with serious implications for Islamic life such as nearness to God and annihilation in God. Now, these lataif are not even part of mainstream Islamic thought. But crucially, the Naqshbandis also insist on the complete validity of the exoteric message of the Qur'an, as well as on rigorous Islamic practice, the daily prayer, the pilgrimage to Mecca, etc., etc. And this tends to be true across the board. As Katz says, quote, Mystical interpretation must at least conform generally to accepted moral rules, and often mystics set far higher standards. So if by positing a trans-traditional mysticism we're implying that the exoteric religious traditions are somehow transcended or don't matter to the mystics, we are gravely disrespecting the source material. Correct performance of Islamic prayer may not matter to some scholars, but it clearly matters to Islamic mystics. There is, of course, 
the question of transgression. The mystical traditions are full of examples of mystics who are given special passes to act in ways forbidden to normal folks because they have a special status. We think of the tradition of holy fools in the Orthodox Christian world or Hasidic rabbis doing wacky stuff like somersaulting on the way to the synagogue or of Halaj, the great Sufi mystic said to have been burnt at the stake for claiming Ana al-Haq, I am the truth. Al-Haq being one of the attributes of God in the Quran. So something a Muslim is really not allowed to say that they are. But this is not the same thing as a message that the religious law is somehow invalid. It's merely suspended for a specific case. Someone whose special status gives them special privileges. This is confirmed by many teaching stories. Halaj is said to have danced on the way to his execution and told his persecutors, the ones who were going to burn him at the stake, that they were right to burn him for breaking the religious law by committing shirk. That is, by associating of attributes with God, which is a major sin in Islam, when he claimed to be the truth. He, Halaj, was also right to make the claim because through his mystical insights, he had come to a realization of some kind of unity between the creator and the created. A further problem with the category of mysticism, then, is that if we mean by it a trans-religious category which is privileged above the exoteric, so-called legalistic types of faith practiced by ordinary people, we're actually not following the mystics themselves, but our own preferences. Very modern preferences, I might add, which look for a psychological reality behind religious beliefs and practices. I would argue that whether or not we believe personally in mystical experiences which somehow transcend the specific cultural traditions and laws of different faiths, and however we define them to ourselves, we should be very vigilant lest we insert this belief, which is ours, into the mouths of mystical authors who do not share it. In other words, we can say that Halaj is arguing for a special status for himself, which puts him personally above certain aspects of the religious law. But what we cannot argue is that Halaj thinks the religious law is meaningless or nonsense, or he's seen beyond it and he thinks it doesn't matter anymore. Quite the opposite. So far, so good. Or so bad, if the outcome we're looking for is a clean and useful category of mysticism. But it gets worse. As we saw last episode, the evolution of the term mysticism doesn't come to us directly from the mystery cults. It enters into the Christian tradition via the pseudo-Dionysius and other Christian authors who will be discussed in this podcast, incubates in medieval Christianity, and when it emerges on the other side in the high Middle Ages, it has become something very different, but something very Christian. We saw this in our Oxford English Dictionary definition of mysticism, cited in the last episode, as, quote, belief in the possibility of union with the divine through ecstatic contemplation. Now, if we want to keep the Buddhists in the discussion, we'll need to drop the divine part here. In some schools of Buddhism, the fact that there is no divine ground of being is really the point. So there's no divine with which to have any union. And yet, most students of mysticism would feel very bereft if they had to give up the amazing mystical literature of some sects of Buddhism. Our problem here is that the definition of mysticism in question has Christian, or at least theistic, overtones, precisely because it is a term which developed through the history of Christianity. If we really want a transcultural mystical experience or something like that, we need a new term for it at the very least. We'd have to ditch mysticism, essentially. While we're talking about this definition, we should 
have another look at it. We can note here that there are at least two possible layers. The OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, defines mysticism as the belief in the possibility of union with the divine. Now, if the mystic actually becomes unified with the divine, this is the M1 mystic, or let's say has the experience of becoming unified with the divine, then belief in the possibility of union with the divine isn't mysticism. It's belief in mysticism. It is, in fact, our mysticism too. The problem here is that the definition seems to want to describe mysticism as a form of belief, a kind of theoretical possibility. But surely such a belief implies that you believe also that people have attained to this union, or at least could in principle. So if the belief is mysticism, what about the actual attainers, the practitioners of mysticism one? Are they perhaps to be defined as something like practical mystics, but what they're doing can't be defined as mysticism because that definition is already taken to describe the people who believe in them, if you see what I mean? Either the OED here doesn't believe in M1 as an experiential or practical category, which is possible. If they do believe in this category, what they're doing is like defining auto mechanics as the belief that cars can be repaired. Surely the definition of auto mechanics should be the art or science of repairing cars. But I'm not here to pick on the OED. Well, I am, but that's not my main task. We've shown sufficiently, I hope, some of the obvious ways in which the term mysticism is problematic. Let's just review them again here. Number one, no one can agree on what it means. Certainly the OED, which defines it as a belief in practical mysticism, that is, Steve believing in Rupert, differs from at least one common interpretation as referring to the practice itself, that is, Rupert's actual inner practice or experience, whether we define that practice as one of union with the divine or in some other way. And once you dive into the scholarly literature studying mystical texts, so-called, you see that this problem is everywhere. Steve and Rupert get confused a lot, and we end up with Reeve and Stupert, which is not good for anyone. Two, the term mysticism tends to conflate lots of different accounts, which the actual mystical writers, whom we interpret, insist really are different. And it imposes on them a transcultural unity which may or may not be there, but we can't assume it's there. Again, it may be that there is a transcultural unity here, and even one based on some kind of raw experience had by different people and interpreted differently. Certainly some of the data of the cognitive science of religion and other lab-based approaches can be read in this way. But if we want to look at actual mystical traditions, that is to delve into the writings of mystics of the Western esoteric traditions and understand what they're doing, we cannot just ignore what they say in favor of our psychological interpretation. If someone tells me that they saw the Virgin Mary or that they were annihilated or that they tra traversed the Sephiroth or whatever, I'm not reporting them accurately if I then turn around and say they all had a mystical experience. Three. The term mysticism has some inescapable Christian overtones, which is fine as long as we're using it to describe Christians and Christianity. If we want to bring in other traditions, the use of mysticism rapidly degenerates into a damage control exercise or into a reductionist approach which takes all the specifics out of the different traditions and irons them flat to fit the mold of mysticism as I just discussed in problem number two. All right, there are, of course, other more detailed criticisms of the term mysticism which could be given, 
but I hope I've distilled the most important broad and obvious problems. Where does this leave us then in terms of being able to discuss mysticism? Well, I can only give my take on the problem here, I should say, for full disclosure. First of all, serious scholars of this stuff are sometimes very circumspect with their language, and they do define what they mean by mysticism. When this happens, we have no problem. Rupert does his thing, which most responsible scholars would argue remains impenetrable to us. We cannot really know what is going on with Rupert when he attains to union with the One, but we can study his account of this, M2, and also the traditions which revolve around it. For example, Steve's glowing description of Rupert as a holy man, whose connection with the highest reality gives him special powers and the ability to work wonders, as well as insights most people lack. So, Rupert has an experience of union, M1, which is hypothetical to us as scholars, since we can't really access it, and his own writings, as well as Steve's writings about this experience, can be studied in the form of M2. But in reality, a lot of writers, and even a lot of scholars who should know better, do not use the term mysticism with particular care. They often assume that something like a Jamesian or Neo-Jamesian mysticism exists, an experiential reality which precedes linguistic conditioning and underlies all mystical experiences. These scholars, I would argue, are doing us a disservice. As scholars, they should be paying attention to what writers of M2 are actually telling us. I think the interest is always in the details, really, and typologies, that is, systems that we create to help us make sense of data, are only useful when they help bring out the significance of the data. If they begin to obscure it, we immediately ditch them without mercy. So I'm in favor of ditching the trans-traditional mystical experience as a category. Even if it exists, and I'm not particularly skeptical that it might do, we just can't access it through humanistic scholarship or podcasts or books or what have you. It may be that the laboratory-based quantitative type of work that's going on in the cognitive science of religion might shed some light on this subject and show us some new paths towards trying to access it and talk about it. But in the meantime, we're basically stuck on the outside looking in. As many mystical writers have told us, you gotta be a mystic to understand mysticism. That is, even M2 cannot properly be interpreted without direct access to M1. Sorry, Steve. As James rightly points out in The Varieties of Religious Experience, the book we discussed last episode, these experiences are often described with some variation on the term ineffable. They cannot be expressed. So let's take the author seriously for once and grapple with this problem of inexpressibility, difficult as it is, rather than finding a quite expressible mystical experience which we can use as a kind of antidote to all the paradox that the mystics themselves feed us. So what I recommend for the study of mysticism is a case-by-case -case approach to M2 material. Steve's particular take on Rupert's mystical achievement, for example, takes the particular form it does because Steve is writing in a genre, a type of text often called late pagan hagiography. Now, hagiography is writing about saints in the Christian tradition, so the lives of saints. This, this whole literary genre is known as hagiography. But scholars have noticed that the Christians' pagan competitors had their own saints in late antiquity, and wrote their own sort of lives of saints about people like Plotinus and Iamblichus, hence the term pagan hagiography. We can look at other pagan hagiographical sources, like Porphyry's Life of Plotinus, 
and others, and see that there are stylistic conventions, there are common themes, there are even stories with origins in mythology that have been transposed onto the biography of the Platonist philosophers. So through understanding the specifics, it helps us in dealing with interpretation of what the mystics are up to, at least to a point. And this goes for first-hand accounts too. Plotinus, one of our favorite authors here at the Schwepp, was of course a great mystic by pretty much anyone's definition of mysticism, and he wrote some heady first-hand accounts of ineffable journeys in the higher invisible realms, which we shall be discussing with relish later on in the podcast, and minds will be blown. But we absolutely cannot interpret these accounts if we do not understand Plotinus's very complex and powerful philosophic thought. And writers on mysticism who abstract a couple of quotations from Plotinus to show that he's not really a philosopher, he's a mystic, are misunderstanding philosophy and misunderstanding mysticism. And moreover, they're just pissing me off. If your definition of philosophy excludes altered states of knowing, which are utterly remote from everyday consciousness, you cannot understand Plotinus. And if your definition of mysticism excludes a keen-edged practice of logical argumentation and rational induction, you also cannot understand Plotinus. So we have to go case by case, delving into the mystical materials with open minds and really listening to our authors, and not first and foremost to our definitions of what they were doing, whether it be philosophy, mysticism, or something else. Now, I've given my cautionary rant about the term mysticism. Being a pedant, I would actually like to see this term either done away with by scholarship or given a solid definition which confines it either to M1 or M2, but never to both. But that's not going to happen. And I hope that I've done the next best thing, namely to prepare my listener to prick up their ears whenever they hear the term mystical or mysticism and so on in the course of this podcast and in the course of their reading and um, seeking to understand religious materials, and immediately ask what exactly is meant here. Are we talking about M1 or M2? Is this a case of Rupert or a case of Steve? Having done this, given my rant, and perhaps cleared away a bit of confusion surrounding mysticism and what can be said about it, and note how I'm still using the term even after I've just denounced it as useless, such as language, having done this, I'd like to say a few words about a genre of M2 literature, which I find particularly wonderful, and suggest that the resources which mystical writers like Rupert and Steve have for expressing M1 experiences, which Rupert claims to have had, are perhaps more powerful than I have let on. I refer, of course, to the genre of mystical writing known as apophatic literature, which we mentioned earlier. Apophasis and this is a term from ancient Greek, which is best translated actually as unsaying, is a genre which takes many forms, from the dryly philosophical type of apophasis found in the Platonists, to the richly poetical, as we find in medieval Christian writers. But in all its manifestations, I would point to the following formula as the sort of essence of this type of literature. Apophasis will make a statement, A, whether positive or negative, which is contradicted immediately by a following statement B, with the result that neither A nor B is true, although both may not strictly be false. In discourse about a supreme principle, God, or another 
non-entity conceived of in terms of its differing from A and B by surpassing both A and B, the negation will have an elative force. That means it will be a negation which moves our thought upward. That which is neither A nor B must be higher than, beyond, or otherwise superior to both A and B. I hope that's clear, and if it's not clear, don't blame me, blame apophatic mysticism. Now, the other thing about apophatic mysticism is that it's endlessly iterative. So you can say, make the statement A, then make the statement B, which contradicts A, then make a statement C, which contradicts both A and B, then make a statement D, which contradicts everything that's come before. Repeat until satisfied, or rather, dissatisfied. Now, in cases like this, a concrete example is always a good idea. So let's look to our favorite author, Plotinus. Plotinus tells us, in Treatise 39, that the One is the origin of all noble and majestic things, and in another way, not their origin. That the One is wholly unrelated to anything, and yet related to everything. That it cannot even be described with the verb to be, in other words, you cannot say that it exists, but that this and all other predications must be stripped away from it. So we cannot even say that the One is. Now, Plotinus is not telling us that the one doesn't exist in a negative sense. He's telling us it doesn't exist in a positive or elative sense, in the sense that it is higher even than being, even than existence. It's not that it doesn't exist like it's just imaginary, you made it up. It's like, no, it transcends the even being itself. If we're waiting for him to get to what the one really is, so he's telling us all the things the one both is and isn't, and if we're waiting for him to get to what the one really is, we will keep waiting. Because in the kind of sustained apophatic writing we get with great mystical literature, the truth event, the point at which the author says, so the answer is this, never comes. Now, there is a lot to be said about this type of writing, and we will never do it justice in a single episode. Or rather, I should say, we will do it justice in a single episode but we won't do it justice in a single episode. We both will and will not do it justice, because it transcends even the Schwepp podcast in its ineffable, yeah, you see what I mean. Or rather, you don't see. Because if you do see, my apophatic writing has not had the intended effect, which is to postpone forever the moment when you say, I see. That moment exists outside the podcast. In fact, that moment exists, if at all, in the wordless realm of M1. So, if you're confused, I've done my job. What I would argue here is that, for all that we can do with a great deal more pedantry in the study of religion, to avoid the kind of nonsense that gets talked on a daily basis about this stuff, I think that mystical literature does have resources at its disposal. What I, following the lead of the scholar of religion Michael Sells, would call the poetics of unsaying which enable us to expand our minds in ways which at least perhaps hint at the realms of the ineffable which M2 cannot by definition reach. In fact, really good mystical writing, read by someone properly cognizant of the tradition to which it belongs, may even lead some way towards an ineffable realization through the poetic power of words. It's not for the faint-hearted, but it's good stuff. Rupert, we have mentioned, is a Platonist mystic of M1, he has attained to the ineffable union, which is not a union, with the one which is not a one. We've also specified, you'll recall, 
that all of his paradoxical writings about his attainment, which rank among the classics of sustained apophatic literature, the type which makes your brain curdle as it piles paradox on top of contradiction with a side helping of total mind warp, belong to category two. No matter how hard he tries, Rupert cannot create category one mystical events through his writing, and himself insists on this point. Poor Steve, Rupert's disciple and admirer, is stuck perpetually at mysticism too, where the best he can do is savor the pungent contradictions and paradoxes of his friend's account of ineffable encounters with the ineffable. But then one day, Steve is reading Rupert's treatise, and for some reason, maybe it's a play of the light, maybe it's the fact that Steve is suffering from mild food poisoning because of that burrito he had earlier, maybe it's the ineffable grace of the one. Whatever the cause, Steve is crunching all these contradictory apophatic statements in his mind, and suddenly, in a wordless moment of insight, he gets it. Now, if you enjoy having your ideas about how things are demolished, and your habitual preconceptions annihilated, and maybe even the odd moment of transcendent knowledge beyond all possible description, you should stick with the podcast, because we will be returning to the heady realm of the apophatic in due course. But there's no need to wait until we get to Plotinus, our favorite 3rd century mystic in our narrative, for more mind-bending, crazy demolition of our sense of reality. Next week, we introduce perhaps the most mind-bending thinker of the entire Western tradition, the father of all paradox lovers, the one, the only, Parmenides. Join us as we take a ride with a goddess and explore the paths of truth and opinion. And in the meantime, Stay esoteric. Don't stay esoteric. Stay neither esoteric nor not esoteric, but something higher than any of these which has no name. <laughs> <laughs>